everyone, and welcome to another episode of Something in the Crumb. We're really excited to be here again with you, and we have a special guest we're so excited about. So, Lei Ho. Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. Yes, so Lei is a restaurant critic at San Francisco's Chronicle, and um, has, a, has a podcast, is like a, you know, a regular of the podcast world. Um, but I know Soleil because of writing. I mean, you're a writer, but like... Um, <laughs> what you say, like writing? Like, we're not sure it's real. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm like... Um, well, you know, I feel like all of the people who listen to us either are friends or friends family or just lovely strangers and they don't know that we have real jobs that like have stuff that is in them so um, <laughs> so I I first met Soleil many many years ago in a different life um, where she worked as an editor at a um, like a, a magazine essentially and she edited an essay that I wrote um, about a poem that Jack Gilbert Gilbert wrote called like in defense of joy or in defense of white joy. That was my subtitle. Um, <laughs> so yes, it was like one of the first things I think I ever published. Um, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So yes, thank you for helping me with that. Um, and so Leigh has moved on from the dumpster fire of the of that scene. Not that magazine. That's not what I mean. I just mean like small literary circles. Is it okay if I say that? So Leigh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I don't even remember the last literary journal I've picked up, honestly. Oh. I'm terrible. Um I've just been publishing in like magazines and uh, <laughs> newspapers at just a different scene, you know, <laughs> I'm publishing in magazines. So <laughs> does that make me sound terrible? Oh God, I'm sorry. No, mm, no, this, this podcast is all about shade. So great to have you. Soleil. <laughs> so excited to have you. Soleil. So um, yeah, so that was, thank you so much for publishing, you know, an, my one of the first articles or essays that I wrote about whiteness and poetry, I guess it's, the work has not stopped, but um, do you want to say anything about you and anything else that you would like to include before we move to our episode? Sure. Um, gosh, I I am a food critic as my job job, but I also find a lot of time to write about TV, um, film. One of my recent stories that is coming out this week actually is about Supermarket Sweep. I'm a big fan of like 90s TV, and so that just got re-released on Netflix, incidentally, since we're talking about a Netflix show. Whoa. And um, it's like the 90s episodes. Super great. It really brought me back. I haven't seen an episode of that show since I was a child. And so I regressed pretty heavily. And thank God I get to write about the things I watch on Netflix for money. Ugh. It's such a blessing. Living the dream. I know. <laughs> this is 
this is yeah they're actually relaunching the show with leslie jones as the host so i'm very excited what yes That's amazing yeah i was are actually they, getting... are they gonna go to 99 ranch or i would hope i mean that would be amazing uh i have no idea now they were supposed to start filming this spring but obviously things happened mm. so we'll see yeah i don't even i don't think I wasn't really allowed to watch TV while growing up, you know, very, very um, religious immigrant household that I grew up in. So I didn't watch these shows, but I like want to. So maybe I'll read what you wrote first and then go back. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I write about all the reasons why it's good. So it'll be a good starter if you are unfamiliar um, okay, so I actually don't think I talked, I said, we said, the show that we're going to talk about today. Kim, do you want to tell us? Oh, yes. So the show we're going to discuss is called It's Okay to Not Be Okay, which is currently airing on Netflix. We're only about halfway through. Um, but the Korean title is more problematic, <laughs> The Korean title... The Psycho Chiman Kentana, I think, is the Korean title, which the direct translation is You're a Psycho, but that's okay. Um, oh, or like Psychotic, but that's okay. Oh. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, you didn't know that? <laughs> no. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not great. Not great. Uh, so, we're not going to call it by that. <laughs> um, but the premise of the show is basically uh, our emotionally unavailable alien from a previous episode that we talked um, from My Love from the Star. He, he's back on this show <laughs> as an emotionally repressed mental health quote-unquote professional. <laughs> and he gets entangled in this relationship with... Uh, "Quote unquote famous <laughs> children's book author uh, who has antisocial personality disorder." Maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe. Yes. Um, but uh, see, so yeah, there's a lot of hypotheticals here. Um, she's famous. She's very famous, um, and he essentially um, he has a brother who has autism. Um, and his brother, he's basically has grown up his entire life, um, sort of being by his brother's side and caring for him. And most of his life revolves around just being with his brother. And, uh, I think that when we encounter them, he, uh, he works at a mental health facility, but it's kind of uh, noted that like every couple years they basically, um, uproot and move somewhere else. Um, for a variety of reasons. So he's someone that doesn't have a lot of connections um, and then encounters this famous author in part because um, she, well, his brother is a big fan of her books. Um, and they just kind of start to become a bit entangled in their lives, in each other's lives. Um, but he is perhaps the most repressed character we've 
ever encountered. <laughs> and we watch a lot of TV, people. We watch a lot of TV. And, um, and so a lot of the series, it's actually, there's a lot of stuff about kind of diagnosing each other. There's a lot about therapy. There's a lot about um, these questions around normativity and, uh, and where, where does love fit into this um, and how love often gets um, confused for a number of other things such as the absence of maternal love for one thing or um, as some sort of, I don't know, how familial love and romantic love get entangled. <laughs> um, so there's just, it's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's, I would say it's like one of the shows that I think um, there's a lot of realism, I think, to some of the relationships. And I think there are many moments, I think, when Unsung and I were watching that we felt very, like, oof, that felt very real. Um, but the um, the general premise is that they, you know, want to be together but can't, which is like every other show that we watch, I guess. So. <laughs> I mean, that's what makes it spicy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, we should also say that the there's a, I think half the episodes are out or a little more than half. So this will be part one, and there will be a part two. Um, but Soleil, what what were your sort of your some of your preliminary thoughts of this show? Oh my gosh, um, I love the outfits. <gasps> first of all, <gasps> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's, yeah, Moon Young, um, her outfits are just always perfect. It makes me feel very much like, oh gosh, that one character in Killing Eve, the, um, serial killer with like the really bodacious, just couture. Mm -hmm. I, that's kind of why I kept watching this particular show. <laughs> Not to say that it's bad, but like, I am very drawn to really good clothing and, I think there's a story, just like in Killing Eve, right? There's a story in the clothing that the character wears, and it is very much that that tension between like princess and witch, and just who is who is she really, and like what is she embodying? I I love that. Yeah. No, totally. And there's an episode actually, one of the most recent episodes um, that I was so I was like so triggered by um, in many ways that where he actually critiques her clothing. Mm. Um, but like, you know, we don't have to talk about that now. Um, but since you are a food critic and we have you on and we're so excited, we thought we could talk about something that we continuously talk about, which is product placement. And in this, in this series, this product placement, it, I think it really delves into like uh, absurdist um, it, like absurdism. I mean, it's basically like Dadaism. Like, what what is Subway in the middle of like you know like the premise is like there's a mental health hospital in a small town in Korea, and everyone's eating Subway and this pizza place. Yeah, I mean, I also think that it's real missed opportunity for more conceptual and product placement, if you will. 
<laughs> you know, because it's like they have this whole like gothic noir thing going on, you know, like kind of Tim Burtony or something like that. And you're like, Subway, that pizza, that pineapple pizza. You're like, that doesn't seem, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know about what a gothic pizza place is, but I feel as though they could have tried a bit harder for something. Because I think that's what makes it extra absurd is that it really stands out in this entire scene that they kind of constructed on this show where you're like I don't believe that she eats sandwiches like I just don't right I mean it's a pretty big contrast between that and the steak in episode one which I felt felt like a very good character moment or you know you could put butterfly wings as pizza toppings why not they could play oh, with it yeah. oh my god is that a thing do people eat butterfly wings <laughs> I feel like she would okay yeah. I was gonna say I'm like well <laughs> I was like, wow, I had no idea if you got that adventurous. But, like, you're right. <laughs> she might. But you're not saying that there's actually specialty pizza that has this. No. Although, okay. I mean, there are certain restaurants that delve into butterfly motifs pretty heavily. But they don't serve actual butterfly. Maybe caterpillar. But I think the wings are generally poisonous. Oh, interesting. I mean, more of a reason for her to risk it. You know, they really like they paint her out to be kind of, um, you know, like YOLO for life or something like isn't that like part of her character setup that she's willing to do? She, she does exactly what she wants and what she wants is at the edge of death, basically. Right. No, she seems like the type who would really go for blowfish sushi. You know what I mean? Or who would fly across the world to try just to have lunch at some weird place. I think that makes sense for her. Yeah. what Subway a- doesn't really. Okay. What oh, else? What-, no? <laughs> <laughs> what else do you think she would eat? And what do you think he would eat? Because does he eat Subway? Or does he not really eat? He eats Subway. We've seen oh, him eat Subway. Okay. Yeah. We've seen everybody eat Subway. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's the people's food, right? No, it's really good. I'm surprised there wasn't a subway in North Korea in Crash Landing. That would have made a lot of sense (laughs) for their branding. Even in North Korea. (laughs) You know, but I think she would, I think she's carnivorous. That's her character. I think, and, you know, the, the whole premise of her not having empathy and all of that like it lends itself to a carnivore diet i think again the steak was really perfect and i think if she were to eat raw liver or something like that that would make a lot of sense too mm-hmm. yeah but for him gosh i don't know it's because he's too repressed you don't he's know so repressed. <laughs> yeah he would probably eat saltines Oh, Oh, that's some sweet shade. (laughs) You know, he's the kind of guy who doesn't care about, I mean, I don't know, to to me, he doesn't care about fine things or pleasure or flavor. And he just wants, like, he's a Soylent guy. Don't you think, like, couldn't you see him just, like, chugging Soylent from going between, like, work and home? Yeah. I mean, I actually can't even really imagine him eating. Like, Kim texted me that he's just... an alien. Yeah, that he's basically an alien who's returned to the show. 
you know, like surprise at the end, we find out he's actually an alien is probably going to be the plot twist. But yeah, I can't imagine him eating. And so that's why I was like, does he eat? Because he's so sterile that like, I forget that, you know, like, I don't know. That's like the character he plays. So Soylent actually makes so much sense. Like he's skinny. He drinks shakes. Yeah, I think that it's, I think that you just, like, describe it so perfectly, though, with, like, that he, he doesn't, like, there's no pleasure, there's no pleasure in his life, and he doesn't even want to allow pleasure into his life, so that's why, like, eating, first of all, we can't imagine him eating, and even then, when we do see him eating, we just saw a scene of him eating, and it just feels very functional, and not for pleasure. Like he doesn't, he doesn't enjoy things, nor does he seek out things for joy. Right. Sounds like a really, I mean, honestly, maybe it's my bias, but it's not very sexy. It's like, I can't be with anyone who doesn't like food. He doesn't like anything. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not personal, but it is just like, uh, okay. Swipe I'm left. <laughs> but she actually says this to him. She says, like, you don't have any desire. Like, you, you know, you're basically, she, there's, like, a scene, I think, in one of the later episodes where she's like, you know, you don't have any desires. You're so repressed, essentially. Which goes into this thing that we wanted to ask you about, which is, like, this endless kind of, everyone's constantly diagnosing each other. Um, it's just like every scene is just like an unofficial therapy scene where, you know, this is the diagnosis of you and this is the diagnosis of you back and forth. Um, and sometimes it's made by a professional, whatever that means, apparently on this show. And most of the time it's made off the clock. Yeah, no, um, I think it's such a common trope too in romance where any sort of, especially in I think Asian romance where emotional problems are solved by boobs mm. to put it like really pat, you know, like the in typical stories where the heroine is like the audience insert, you know, there are, there's a cast of characters that are awful in their own particular ways. And then she solves all of their problems just by existing mm -hmm. and being nice. And like, that's how it works out for her. Yeah. Um, and so I think this is part of it, but it's, you know, it's more complex. It's a 2020 version of that where, Oh, the heroine is also kind of fucked up and they get to deal with that together. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because it's not how it works generally. And it is very much like I've read so many advice column questions about how people want to fix the other person and it just doesn't work out. And I think this is very much like that. It's very much a fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like you ask yourself too about like, who, who wants this? <laughs> like, who wants to be with someone who is constantly diagnosing you know you and why do you want to constantly be diagnosing your partner like that's like a like this is the wrong kinds of labor that are going into this relationship um and you see a lot of scenes where you know she's just like ah so you're this kind of person 
<laughs> because of this, because of this. And then he's like, like, looks like, what? What do you know about me? And then he gets like kind of defensive and then does it back to her where it's like, I'm not like you because you are someone who blah, 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 blah. And it's like, is this what we want in relationships where someone else is just like telling us like, you're someone who's like this, you're jealous. No, you're spiteful. It's like, that's, that doesn't sound like it's going to work out. But like the premise of why it's supposed to work out is like the premise of all K dramas, but maybe just like the fairy tale overall, which is supposed to be, it's like something that the show seems to be playing with that like, she is a children's book novel uh, writer um, and she plays with like this kind of fairy tale trope, you know. So like you, you saying like she is like the wicked witch. She's this beautiful wicked witch, like who's like looks like a princess but identifies as a witch. So you know that's her character. Um, and in the fairy tale, they meet when they're young, um, and in like the chase Christian tale. <laughs> in like the trope of the K-drama, they also meet when they're really young and then they apparently never like anyone else. And then they meet each other again and then they're like immediately into each other because, well, they were into each other when they were seven, so why not? I mean, isn't that how romance works out? Um, wait, what? There's nothing pure, right, <laughs> than like a childhood love that's pre-sex, pre-puberty. Um, there is something very... Mm. yeah like snow white about it yeah but also i've been like really thinking about this because i'm like i don't really remember anything from when i was seven i mean <laughs> like other than like the like slightly traumatic stuff like the, the the immigration stuff like i don't actually remember liking anyone at all do you guys remember anyone that you had a crush on I don't remember any one period I can from when I was seven. <laughs> oh, That's what I'm saying. Who dis for everybody? <laughs> Who remembers anything from when they were seven? I mean, other than like, I don't know. I have like a few memories of like, but they're not memories of like, I like someone. It's like more like, Oh, God, I'm in a new country. What's happening? Like, you know, they're like flashes. I can't remember anything. Yeah. So often in the setup for these shows, those memories are constructed around trauma. Mm. Right? Where it's like, well, of course he remembers because he nearly drowned and, uh, you know, and then also maybe nearly killed his brother. Um, or let his brother die. <laughs> and she almost let him die. So that's why they remember each other. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty, I mean, it's tied to a sort of traumatic event. So I could see why it would be more realistic for them to remember each other. Or it's just, it's just a, it's just a, a device. And we could just leave it at that. Uh, just because it's traumatic, I definitely do not believe that you should marry anybody or date anybody just because you had a dramatic uh, moment together just be clear about that <laughs> yeah it is definitely a device to jump over any sort of connection that they would have to set up or any kind of emotional intimacy because it like sets it up like oh they connected when they were seven and now they're adults and they will just spend time diagnosing each other 
which is their love language. And then they die? <laughs> it sounds pretty exhausting, to be honest. I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, no, this does not seem... This is a... I don't know if this is the fairy tale warning. <laughs> like, what is this relationship? It's kind of malpractice. I mean, <laughs> maybe not kind of. It really is. Just, you know, it, it reminds me of the people who self-diagnose from reading on Wikipedia or WebMD, mm. all kinds of illnesses. And uh, you can get yourself into a lot of really weird holes if you get into the habit of doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it also reminds me of people who are really overly invested in horoscopes. No offense. Um, by people who are like, oh, yeah, you're a Scorpio. That's why you're like that. <laughs> Wait. And it's just very much, there are certain people who are very invested in the set categories of behavior, and they use that as, like, the shorthand. Mm. Um, I just find that so fascinating. But, Soleil, what is your sign? I am a Virgo sun, Libra rising. <gasps> <laughs> what's your, what does it mean i don't know what is what's your moon uh, i think it's also in libra it's fascinating we were actually just having a conversation the other day where we were like we don't know anything about libras <laughs> my, except my brother is a libra that's why we even know one Libra, but now we know two Libras, Soleil, because of you. I mean, you're, you're like Virgos, I feel like, you know, <laughs> have such a place in my heart um, to, to go back to like your critique of horoscopes, you know, because it's a complete absurdism, obviously, but possibly less absurd than Subway in this show. Yeah. Oh, the like last comment about product placement and Subway. Um, my brother did tell me, and I was like looking at like reports of how they, as a franchise, they were not doing very well in Korea, and they're actually very. Uh, it's not cheap. Like it's not like here where things are like I don't know what's a six inch. It's like I don't need to do advertisement for them, but. Um, They've been so aggressive in product placement because they were not doing well. And so, like, they're slowly doing better, but it's not like they're doing great. Mm -hmm. So makes... there hasn't been a lot of returns, even though they've, like, basically dumped, I don't even know how much money, into K-dramas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this it did the same thing that K-dramas did for, like, Jajangmyeon, for instance, right? Mm. Like, that really got a huge boost a lot of publicity from gay dramas but i couldn't imagine subway this is it's just different emotionally the tenor is very uh tepid we also hate sandwiches overall me and kim. <laughs> <laughs> what why kim he just i feel like it's not our carb of choice maybe <laughs> I think very often you encounter sandwiches with too many ingredients in them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's like, I think what you said, though, about the tepid, it also doesn't, like, I like a hot food, you know? 
like a hot, hot meal. <laughs> and I very rarely, unless it's like, yeah, a dessert of some kind. I feel like for lunch, I don't really want a sandwich generally. But, you know, we don't need to diagnose why we hate Subway. I mean, everybody hates Subway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I if I'm sad and I want to eat something, it's not going to be a big sandwich. I mean, we're also not this repressed alien, you know? And we're also not a tortured actor on this television show. We we all love food. Like we take so much pleasure in food and snacking for me is like, I mean, there's so many things I like look forward to eating when I go to sleep at night. I'm like, what, what's possible tomorrow? Like so much is possible. Um, that I cannot ever imagine myself waking up and being like, I guess I'll eat a sandwich because why would I do that? myself all good points yeah oh yes so at one point uh in their multitude of therapy sessions known as their relationship (laughs) uh our lead female character you know describes our repressed alien as like asks him if he's a tamer or a caretaker and I feel like that scene was just, like, so perfect. It's like, this is exactly it, you know? It's basically the same... It's the same kind of violence but a different form of abuse, you know, where it's like he either wants to tame or control or basically, like, suppress a kind of, like, exceptionalism or to, like, push the people around him into more, like, normativity or heteronormativity. Or even in his job as, like caretaker he kind of just like wants again to like control people um he advises basically like as he does with himself to repress repress their feelings repress their like love for one another like there's like a couple where he's like there's a couple who has gotten together at the um hospital that he works and they're like we love each other and he's like well just repress that Like, that's how you should do it. Like, and it's like, are you a mental health professional? Like, this is how you're going to tell them? Just be like, just shove those feelings down. It's going to be fine. I've been doing it my entire life. And it's going to be fine. <laughs> and so, and, and then it's like, you know, and it brings up this question too about like, we talk a lot about what care is, what is care actually, and how often care is also like a soft word for for dominance you know or like a soft word for control in some in some way and i think that the her her diagnosis there of him seemed very um appropriate in that way because they're not they're not actually different at the end um yeah i think it's it's very much i mean i think about um the idea of like smothering with care or like aggressive care um I am a frequent reader of advice columns and I read about, for example, mothers and just like the suffocating mother being the one who weaponizes care in sort of as a way to control their children or just parents in general. And it's so interesting the way it's almost like a narrative that you tell yourself, right? About like, I think that's why people kind of resort to that because it's very much, I'm a caring person. I am a good person. 
uh, but it's a way to facilitate these really not so good behavioral patterns, you know? Ugh, and his mother is the worst. The worst. Um, it, it comes out that, you know, one of the reasons, one of the variety of reasons, perhaps the main source of why he became so repressed is in part because his mother said to him repeatedly that he was born, um, or she had him only to basically take care of his older brother. Mm -hmm. um, and that that is like, you know, kind of, he, he consistently wants her love and her affection and she mostly um, puts her energy and attention towards uh, his, his older brother. And so he's constantly wanting and, and then becomes incredibly resentful for it. And then she is always quick to remind him that his entire purpose is to serve his brother basically. And it's, it's like incredibly sad and, um, and it's like a kind of, it's a kind of abuse that I think, you know, mom abuse that we don't always, we don't always talk about. No, most of, most Korean shows, um, I mean, I think it's really interesting to uh, explore or present um, intimate and interpersonal violence or the kind of violence that happens in the family, because I think that, um, a lot of Korean shows kind of quickly do this. The mother is great. Everything that the mother sacrifices, aren't they so wonderful? And even with the first episode, we will put a trigger warning for this show because you definitely need a trigger warning for this show. You mean the first episode is like a scene where a father tries to take his life and the life of um, his daughter, which is actually it turns out our main character's experience as well. Like she had a father who tried to take her life and a mother who was also really violent towards her. So we have both main characters who grew up with abusive parents, be it physical or emotional um, abuse. And then they find each other and spend the entire time conflating maternal love with romantic love or wanting maternal love as romantic love which turns into a long as we said um undiagnosed need for therapy but as a relationship i mean but it's really serious i i do think that uh it's something that i don't think we have enough serious conversations about let alone we see very often on tv like what do you do when you grow up in a violent household where not just one parent, but both parents are just terrible and that's, that's it. Like that's how you grew up and then you become a mental health yeah. professional and you, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> what were you going to say? <laughs> no, I was just saying like, we are always trying to solve the problems that our parents, mm lend to us <laughs> that we inherit and I think this is just watching it play out in fiction is a really good way of I think exercising that muscle because I think it's a pretty universal problem you know what I mean and it is very much just seeing these very very extreme cases especially in these dramas is is helpful I think and it's therapeutic too for the viewer 
is it therapeutic watching her, her father like um attempt to kill her like that is that was like that's the i i mean one of the things that is like that scene was violent and um really intense to watch but i think the part that was like also really uh, upsetting about it was after um the father uh tries to kill our lead female character uh a bunch of the nurses and the doctors like pull him off of her and she's just laying on the ground you know and just like sad like you know sad upset she's you know she's been here before it's like very upsetting and then but like all the nurses and doctors are just like doting on her father and like surprised and they're like how, like what happened and like as if she provoked him and like and it just it really speaks to i think you know what we're touching upon too about this kind of um unprofessionalism within this field too where it's like i don't like you you have a very like you've misconstrued who the victim is in this situation but that that's actually so true because part of like it's set up that the nurses already dislike her they they immediately dislike her and their diagnosis of her is that she's like selfish or self-involved because they want her to come visit her father and um she has not because well she lives with this memory that he tried to kill her and i it's very reasonable to not ver- want to see your father. totally if you never see this man again what can we say to you really i mean and this is the other thing that is very tricky that i think um i don't know i don't have any good answers for I don't know how I'm not I'm, I'm I'm like I just feel like it's very complicated probably as an issue to talk about how like not only is it like they're talking about parental abuse but like then he ends up at this hospital right so there's like mental health mental illness and abuse but nevertheless she doesn't want to visit him which valid reason and they berate her they basically say like you have to come. And they criticize her for not taking her dad on walks and basically set up this like negotiation to try to make her come to like perform this, you know, good daughter performance for them, you know, like, it's like about their self righteousness, like their need to see what they believe a good daughter would do. Because like, essentially, they're saying we do this stuff, we take him on walks, we perform these acts, we think you should, even though they basically say that he might not be able to recognize anyone, like that he might be like in his own kind of state of mind and not really registering what reality is. Like nevertheless, like she's criticized for not visiting him. So then when she does and she actually takes him on a walk, this happens. And no one, no one like says anything to her. No one like says like, oops, sorry, we never asked you why you didn't want to visit your father. They just ignore the whole thing. And then it's never brought up again. Um, And so like, yeah, you know, someone else should say something. But like, I did think like on multiple levels, like, 
you know, it was sort of, I thought it was so interesting that like, it's already assumed that he's not just innocent, but he's like, they really set this like up so that like he's elderly and innocent and like they're um, so like all of like the care should go to him, which I think is like kind of something that a lot of people would immediately accept. Um, and I don't want to say like, so therefore it's complicated, but I thought like the show was really pushing that, like pushing that angle of like, this presumed innocence of the elderly. Um, well, what are you really going to do about it if this is this? If like if this is the situation, like what would you say about who the victim is? Mm. Yeah, no, I mean she's a terrible victim. Terrible, if that makes sense. Like oh, she yeah. doesn't make sense in that narrative. Like you know, I think it all goes back to that like princess archetype. She isn't the princess that's imperiled. She's not easy to empathize with. And I think the character makes it really, really, the way she's written makes it really hard for you to empathize with her. Um, I mean, imagine if she weren't pretty Mm. on top of that. Absolutely. I love that. She's a terrible victim. I mean, she basically refuses to be a victim. I think that that's part of her, that was part of, at least that's how I interpreted her refusal to see him, her refusal to kind of be in like any kind of dynamic um, with her father is that, is because like, well, isn't it just, wouldn't she just immediately be re-victimized? Like, what is she going to do? No, but you're totally right. I think, and, and it's so interesting, like the choice, she could make a choice to play the really dutiful like daughter or the really um, victimized person or, you know, someone who's vulnerable and wounded. And that would make her life a lot easier too. Absolutely. And you could see that it's very clear in the narrative. Um, it's so interesting that she does it again, like it's refusal on the, on the part of the character to, to play that part. And I think that's what makes it interesting. You know, it's, it's very different. Oh, this repressed alien. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he's so frustrating. He's so frustrating. Um, yeah, maybe this is, maybe that we should talk a bit about um, just in terms of a bit more about this, about normativity, basically. You know, like she is someone that um, doesn't, you know, undiagnosed antisocial disorder um, or so we it's in the descriptions, I guess. But I think that there's a lot of like how, how we're supposed to like, how they set up her character as if she is this anomaly, right? Like she is this bizarre woman who lives in this like haunted mansion, who does her own thing, who like can't be controlled, who, you know, exists in this way that, that is very, it's terrifying because it's untamable somehow. And, and that there, and that everyone around basically is upset that she doesn't kind of slot into this sort of normative um, existence. And I think going back to um, what you brought up earlier on song about like, you know, him judging her clothes, you know, and, and saying that she essentially, like, he's, he said something like, can't you just dress normal? 
can't you just like dress like a normal person and like not wear this beautiful hat and this like giant dress and like you know and 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 it feels like there's a lot about all these different characters that not only are like upset that she doesn't kind of fit into this but I think for each other too it's just like constantly trying to like keep everybody normative you know like can we just like not exist in this way can you and I feel like the doctor um who we kind of can't stand because his like uh we're, we're not even sure he's really a doctor like his, <laughs> methods, his methods are just like I'm like I don't know anything I don't know anything about how this profession works I don't know anything about this as a science but your methods of treatment are very questionable and often seem like they actually are kind of violent, you know, where they, I think, are sort of like, just repress, just be more normal. Do you have thoughts? Well, just stop thinking those things. Look, I will out myself and say, I'm an analysis. I've been in analysis for a few years. I'm like a total, I try to like, get everyone in analysis. I'm like, well, not really. I mean, in my mind, I meet someone and I'm like, oh, yeah, can't deal. Hope they go to analysis. But, <laughs> like, I'm like, hope they ha- hope they figure it out. So I don't know what I don't know. I don't know very much from the doctor's perspective. But I do think he is so absurd as like a character. I think all of the nurses are so absurd. And I think we should talk about this. I really want to hear your thoughts, Soleil. But I will say that. The scene where he critiques her clothing and says, like, can you change and wear something more normal was so triggering for me. Like, I woke up the next morning and, like, texted Kim, like, really early being like, 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 because I mean, and maybe this is like an opportunity for us to talk about, like, structural societal issues in relation to all of everything that's happening. Like, well... What what is what is normative dressing? Like there are rules. There are rules for normative dressing for women. Like be it in the US or in Korea, like there are like dress codes that are essentially for women. Like if it wasn't dress codes and legally there were like things that um are were structured to confine women's bodies. So then for someone to be like dress normal is it like felt so violent and then the two men had like some conversation the doctor like he asked the doctor some questions about dressing and he had some analysis and it was like both of you were absurd like there's so much misogyny in this conversation the fact that like you were having a conversation about the way that some woman dresses when she's not present as if you have a say like you have no say like you already tell her what to do on a daily fucking basis. You and your nurses try to create situations to that are basically injurious to her with and then you do not apologize or you spend the time diagnosing her and telling her what's wrong. On top of that, you find fault with her hats. Like get the fuck out of here. It like really pissed me off. I was like so pissed off at the scene. I mean, I wasn't really happy with him before this, but after that, I just was like, I don't know if I can see his face. Like, it's just... As Soleil said before, she looks great. <laughs> like, I don't know what you people are yapping about. She looks great. 
Well, you know, for this character, her clothing is very much her armor. Mm. And I think these entreaties for her to change the clothing are sort of misguided attempts to get her to open up to and be more vulnerable with them. But you're also right about how these dress codes are also a way of enacting social control. And especially in ways that are very gendered, very raced, <laughs> racialized, very much in service of heterosexuality and certain binary gender performances. So yeah, I think that for this character and for all the characters, like the clothing is very much a statement in regards to like their proximity to those norms. And as someone who sticks out, you know, the main character is very much that's that's how she expresses that how she expresses her distance and her darkness <laughs> uh quote unquote and uh, yeah their attempts to get her out of those outfits is an attempt really just to to save her in their eyes from that i mean i guess it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of vulnerability like what um what they're seeking you know, in terms of, because I feel like she's also someone that in some ways there's so many things we don't know about her, but also like, we know a lot, you know, because she, like, girl literally just like wields a knife in someone's eye. And it's like, I think she's saying everything she needs to say about you, <laughs> you know, like, like you're, she's not hiding. And I think it's an interesting thing about like, even fashion being used as, armor but also like um you know character development too you're just like you actually know like i feel like you also know a lot about her because of how she dresses and so it's like this kind of interesting thing about like but we still need to know more or something or we still need more from you we still like need to break something down to like get to something and and that also feels like it's like then touching again on this kind of like control or dominance or something like it's it's like she actually is expressing a lot you know but it's like it's not it's not like an openness that you're looking for it might be something else mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no i mean i definitely don't think the characters know what they're doing also give it <laughs> you can't force them obviously you can't force someone to do that for you you can't force them to reveal themselves to you in that way um either whether through clothing or through like emotional catharsis you can't force it and as we see like it doesn't really work <laughs> to, to, to do that it doesn't come off right and i think the viewer really is able to pick up on that yeah maybe um, it's not a therapy fantasy maybe it's an analysis fantasy because analysis is like therapy doesn't work everybody <laughs> What do you mean? Like analysis, like what psychoanalysis or like? Yeah, like psychoanalysis being like maybe what you guys need is psychoanalysis, not oh, therapy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that would be like such a nuance and niche critique, Kim. Like I think <laughs> that like the psychoanalysts would be like so into this. They're like, yes, Freud. Like this is this is your revenge. Like. This, <laughs> K-drama called It's Okay Not to Be Okay, which is like this real like explicit yet subtle critique of how therapy at mental health is actually a totally broken profession. Thus, you should spend your life in analysis instead. 
Um, but this actually brings us to like something that we really want to talk about with this show, but also um, with this current moment, which is unprofessionalism. We've like talked about throughout that even though the, the, the show centers um, a hospital, the OK Psychiatric Hospital, it is full of people who don't seem to be OK. And by not OK, we mean the prof- the mental health professionals who work there. The nurses and the doctors do not seem to be OK. I mean, they seem to be motivated by their own desires. Um, they seem to be self-righteous. They give basically bullshit advice. Um, and and then there's like this scene. So like, did you, have you watched the episode where like the doctor essentially bribes like one of the patients late at night to essentially tell him all that's been going on in the hospital to to actually like, and the patient is the one who offers like the analysis of what's happening. Did you no. get to this? Yeah. I so, haven't seen that. Yeah. The patient is essentially like, you should be a doctor and like <laughs> talk to some, like you should like observe these people. And, and the doctor's like, it doesn't work like that. And you're just like, oh my gosh, is this how it works? Like you brought, like, is it you, you have a patient spy on everyone and then report back? Like if this is like the CIA or something, like what is happening? So like they're so unprofessional and um, which is like very serious because I think that mental health is an issue that is so sensitive to talk about in most places across the world that then to set up a show where like basically doesn't really seem like a trustworthy place um, (laughs) to be, we thought was like a really kind of. Uh, like a really useful critique, but also an, a way that we could talk about the professions that are set up um, within the guise of professionalism, with you know, like hospitals and doctors and like restaurants and the food industry. Like these are not places where we usually go to to think about something like the interrogation of race, gender, class, and so forth. Like it's sort of assumed that everyone works who works there is already a professional and as we all know that's clearly not the case yeah no I think they're especially I don't know just, I guess to start there's a lot that you brought up but uh, to start with the metaphor of the the hospital you know they're the people in the coats and they're people in the gowns and those are very fixed categories you know they're like the people who are nurses are the nurses and the patients are the patients and there's you know, you assume that there's no slippage between those categories. Um, but that certainly does not reflect real life. And um, in, in the restaurant world, in the food world too, right? There are the people who do the serving and there are the people who are served. And there's very little slippage between those two categories, at least in popular culture. Uh, whereas, again, in real life, like, those categories are very different. But it was, as you see now, right, in this moment where, to bring in current events, um we're in this pandemic and restaurants are against all reason reopening for customers to dine at the places. You're seeing a lot of really interesting reactions and interactions between customers and restaurant staff where people just want to be served. They don't want to be told to wear a mask. They don't want to be told where to stand and where, like 
not to touch a, a server, for instance. Um, and the kind of categorization of people as essential workers versus everyone else, it's just, you know, people are saying, like, if you don't want to go out, you can just stay home. But, like, these workers can't. They have to go. Um, so there's a lot of, like, misunderstanding of just who people are and who gets to be people, I think, depending on the category that you inhabit and the role that you're made to play in this. I think that's uh, that's a place where I see a lot of relation between the two spheres that you mentioned. Um, yeah, so, like, that's really, like, I feel like, I don't know, I'm... I think that the dining experience as it's set up right now in the U.S. is also absurdist theater. Like, I cannot believe (laughs) that, um, like, anytime I drive by, I'm like, this is, this is really bonkers. Like, this is, this really says something about, like, U.S. imperialism or U.S. individualism and, like, the desire to be served um, in a particular way that I don't even know what to do with. Like, it's, there's, it's, there's, it just seems like this incredibly violent situation where everybody knows this is not safe. Um, It's set up as like a hazard site. Um, The servers show up with like a face shield and, and gloves and there's like plexiglass everywhere and I'm like is this an experience like I don't really know what's going on but then right yeah um but then on the other hand you also have what um Kim and I look forward to like a series of resignations (laughs) the the wave (laughs) of resignations that seems to be coming from all the sectors but also in food for all of the, uh, I mean, how do we even talk, how, how do we even put it? Like for the generic racism perpetuated by white men? Is that how we would say? Yeah. <laughs> well, as we sort of enter this nationwide conversation, I think about white supremacy and police brutality and anti-black violence. It's a spirit that's really infused itself throughout many industries and food media and the food industry are just two of those industries. There are a lot of call outs that have happened in not necessarily official quote unquote channels like the news or Mm -hmm. law or, you know, um, the courts, but Instagram and Twitter have been the venues for the sort of like, you know, lending voices to people who have felt really disempowered. So what you're talking about, I think are some (laughs) calls to action posted on Twitter that essentially, you know, there's a wine writer named Tammy Teclamarium who posted a lot of receipts essentially about these white men in power at really big food publications like Bon Appetit and the LA Times. And she really did a lot of work to bring Love these people's Thank you. ills Thank into you. the light. Thank you, Tammy. Thank Amazing. You, Tammy. And at great professional risk to herself, but people just sent her stories and it was a way to give voice to that unprofessionalism. And, you know, unprofessionalism disguised as professionalism right Mm. like these people got these jobs through very legitimate means through networking through being visible through being respectable in a certain way being like the bad boys that um people really 
resonated with at the higher echelons, right? They were bad boys, but they didn't threaten the power that that they held. So it was a very um, entertaining kind of badness, if that makes sense. So not very good for the people of color that worked under them, though. That was that kind of bad. And yeah, I, I think that there's been this reckoning that has given people more strength to to tell the world what's unacceptable, you know? Yeah. Like moldy jam, <laughs> like moldy jam and appropriation and theft of intellectual property. Yes. Yeah, no, I, um, I followed the Bon Appetit story because Kim sent it to me, but also because I've watched a lot of their videos and and I remember even as I was watching their videos thinking like, wow, I'm sure there's a lot of, I'm sure like the white men who appear, like the, the editors, I'm like, I'm sure you are terrible to work for because, you know, there's, there's two, there's, I mean, there's no reason for it to be different in food. There's no reason for like, if you have a society that's like, per, you know, that's built upon white supremacy and anti-blackness and settler colonialism. It's not like you magically have a sphere that's like absolved of those things. Like, you don't, you're not going to randomly have fields or subfields that are like, okay, like all of the fields are going to be infected. I just don't think we remember that. So then we're like, oh, food, food. The editors there are racist. It's like the editors everywhere <laughs> are racist. Like they they are. Yeah, I mean, I think that it relates though to, um, you know, what we talk about all the time about the role that entertainment, you know, plays in a lot of this stuff. That we, you know, people think that it's actually kind of um, it doesn't exist or it's kind of passive in this way where it's like you know you look at those Bon Appetit videos and it's like well isn't this just like a beautiful world where people are just like, you know, they're just making macaroni and cheese and everything's great. And like, there's like homemade pop tarts and it's sunny in the kitchen and people get along, you know? And, and that like, I think people willfully watch those things and like believe that this kind of fantasy exists, you know, and that it, and not, not just as like a food fantasy, but as a fantasy of one that is like devoid of all of these issues too. And I think people want to also believe that like many aspects of our entertainment are like this, when we also know that many things that we watch condition us towards a lot of these systems as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it is so much, I think it was like for a lot of millennials, like of our version of the office. Yeah. And, and yet these were real people whose lives were, you know, people who, Many of the people of color, for example, weren't paid for their work on that series, and that was, was very... shocking. How does how does how does that even happen? Like, is there something I'm not understanding? Like, that's so shocking. It's so shocking. I shouldn't be shocked, but I was so shocked. Like, I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, like, yeah, no. And like the contractors, people like Brad and Claire, make maybe tens of thousands of dollars, right? Sometimes for videos. Whereas someone like Hawa Hassan, who guested and taught them about Somali food, made $400 for a video. <gasps> it's pretty interesting, huh? Wow. What is $400? That's such an insulting number. Like, oh, yeah. It's such a, it's a small and insulting number for like, it's basically like refusing to acknowledge you're a professional. Mm -hmm. Right. So who gets to be a professional? 
Yeah, well, not the professionals because it wasn't. Brad, Brad gets to be a professional. Yeah. Who's like his entire shtick is that he's a man child. Like he's like, I'm a man child. This is my man cave. I don't know. Like I'm just here, like doing my thing, like raising my voice. You know, like I feel like that's his entire thing. But like, wasn't wasn't this the thing at Bon Appetit that like the people who actually had profession, like the non-white people, the people of color who had experience were the very people who were consistently not paid for their mm-hmm. video work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's how, that's the thing, right? You, Regardless of whether your work is fantasy worlds or if it's accounting or whatever, often it, the case is where if you are a white man, you don't necessarily have to prove yourself as much as someone who is not, you know? And I think for people, maybe it was shocking to learn that a place that seems so idyllic or, you know, or even a field that seems so trivial, like food media could also be susceptible to those things. It's yeah. I mean, that is the power of white supremacy, right? It's, It's invisibility. Yeah. What has, has there been any kind of, actual systematic or structural changes um that you can see um happening <laughs> oh at bon appetit um or yes elsewhere no. or that place or elsewhere i mean because this is the really big question is that like is there going to be structural and material change right i mean no <laughs> As far as I can tell, you know, I mean, structural change means, one, like hiring more people who are outside of the norm to be managers, right, to be in charge, and also giving them the power to enact that change in those roles. And, you know, those are two very different things. And oftentimes you get one without the other. Um, You know, there are a lot of calls to replace Adam Rappaport at Bon Appetit with a black woman. But if you hire her and just make her life miserable and give her nothing in exchange for being a symbol um much like elaine Helene welteroth at team yeah. vogue um she's not going to stay too long you know yeah do you know this is more of like a hot gas kind of thing <laughs> there was something circulating about the job posting adam's the job position being posted and the salary was like a third or something of what Adam was making. Can you confirm? Can you confirm if that's true? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. I was also one of the people who circulated that, and it was 120,000, I think, or something like that. And I think this is me not understanding job sites because I think it was just an estimate that the the website put up because they aggregate job postings. kind of thing? Yeah. So... I didn't, I was like, I thought that was just the honest to God number that the Condé Nast was putting out, but it wasn't. It was just their estimate. So it wasn't Condé's fault. But I have heard, allegedly, apparently, um, unconfirmed information that Adam Rappaport's salary was perhaps, allegedly, 800K. Oh my god. That's shocking. I think that that's how much the chancellor of the university, the incoming chancellor of the University of California will be making, which is a pay bump. 
Um, <laughs> because the former person was making like 500k or something, and I just remember thinking like, wow, this is like that's less than museum directors. Yeah, museum directors. <laughs> they're all trash. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I mean. On the off chance that anyone is listening to this podcast who was thinking of applying for that job, um, ask for no less than 500, please. Well, I mean, please, get, please. A, get a million. Ask Why not? Eight. Like, you yeah. heard eight. Spread it, everybody. It was eight, 800K. You deserve it. Yeah. We hope you're listening and applying for that job because if you're listening to this, then you should apply to that job. Like the that chance, means they're cool. Yes. Yeah. The chances of you being interested in K drama, anti capitalism, you know. Actually, I take it back. They shouldn't ask for eight hundred. They should ask for nine fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Anna Wintour is making a mill at least, right? <laughs> at least. I mean, that's like, right. I feel like yeah. she's like, and I I also like just kind of get the sense that like these people come from old money anyway, you know. So like this is like, like what what is I'm sure they they they're the type of people that like would you know perhaps sigh, and say like I I think I've read comments like this online where people are like well you know actually a million dollars in New York is just not that much money. Oh, oh my God. Actually, I remember this. The direct reference is like the Harper's letter that was circulating. And people were like, how many of these people are at least millionaires? Like how many of these people like are in the million, like, you know, dollar income bracket? And like the response. Like low millions. Not like yeah, high. Yeah. Just like, low. Just like a million maybe. And the responses from some people were like, actually, a million dollars in New York just isn't that much money. And I was like, what conversation in the pandemic is this? Like, what is this world that I live in where, like, servers show up in, like, face masks, like, in gloves, like, you know, worried about their jobs. And other people are like, well, actually, a million dollars. Like, what? what is it? What can it really do for you? <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, the, the pandemic has laid bare these differences very clearly. Um, certainly, I mean, all the Zooms where I get to see inside of people's houses or see that they're staying with their parents in, you know, Connecticut is very interesting. Um, yes, I, that I've been really fascinated by. I'm like, wait, all of these white YouTubers were quote-unquote accidentally on vacation with their parents in Connecticut when the pandemic happened? Like, that is, that is like, a real, like, coincidence. Like, how'd you all end up there? Uh, but as we're, like, wrapping up, Soleil, um, what are some of your thoughts and what have you been doing in terms of food, restaurants, just, like, you know, pleasure and eating in the in the pandemic? I mean, like, I think we've all sort of confirmed or agreed that eating out in a restaurant is like very strange behavior. But like, what are some of the things that you've been doing or thinking about? Like, what are you cooking? What's on your mind? Oh, that's a big question. Um, yeah, so I have been really interested in what laid off cooks and restaurant people, sommeliers, servers have been doing 
And a lot of them are starting their own sort of gray market businesses where they're selling, let's say, bread that they've baked at home or cakes or biking arepas out to people on delivery and taking deliveries through text message, you know, and getting money through Venmo. Venmo. Um, so that's been a big part of my work lately is just seeking out those businesses and talking to folks and just checking in on them. I think that's been really fun actually just to see people thrive and do what they've always wanted to do um that they've dreamed of doing while being a line cook for someone else and cooking someone else's food it's pretty cool that it's enabled that and you know of course it's part of this long tradition of people who've been traditionally shut out of air quote legitimate business enterprises doing their own kind of entrepreneurship like people who sell tamales at bars at midnight or people who grill hot dogs on the street on you know sheet pans like people have done this um a lot of people of color, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people who don't necessarily qualify for bank loans so they can open restaurants. So I think that's a really fascinating thing that's come out of this. And um, yeah, I don't know. I've been cooking a lot at home, mostly pescatarian, which is nice. I really don't like meat generally. Uh, so it's nice to take a break from that and just eating a lot of fish collars and rice. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Yeah. Um, if you, like you have some recommendations for gray market, like cell phone numbers or Venmos, um, you should give it to us so that we can list it on this episode or like in the um, description. We would love to, you know, boost your favorites. As, oh, sure. Yeah. Of course. Yes. And I'm sure Kim could really uh, use some too. Since they're local. Don't get those arepas. Totally. For sure. Um, But thank you so much for joining us, Soleil. Thanks for having me. It's been so fun to talk K-drama and trauma. (laughs) K-trauma with you. (laughs) Um, Yes. And we would love to have you back again down the line. So if there's ever a show that you have encountered and would like us to watch please let us know. Yeah. I will. Open invitation always. Um, (laughs) Awesome. Okay. But thank you. And we'll see you next time, everyone. Bye.